I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Sometimes the solution is not to be in a relationship with this person because it's not possible to fill the black hole that is inside this person. That person needs to get help themselves and you cannot do that for them. And if they are not willing to address it, sometimes the boundary is departing. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Men. This is an episode I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I'm really excited about it and also a little nervous about it. So just to put that up front, um, today we're going to be talking about borderline personality disorder. And this is, and part of the reason that I'm doing this topic is because a good percentage of the men that Jason and I work with, a number of our clients come into the program having related with women with borderline. And we're going to talk about what BPD is. BPD is the shorthand for borderline personality disorder. So BPD is what we're going to be using a shorthand. A lot of men have related with women with BPD. And this is important for a number of reasons, but I guess My main intention with this is just to clarify what that means and how important it is to grasp what it is because it can really wreak havoc on your life and the lives, particularly of your children. There's a lot of guys in the program who are co-parenting with a woman with BPD and that can be extremely challenging. So um, even if you aren't familiar with what it is yet, please hang out for this episode. I think that, I think for a lot of you, this might be relevant. So, um, and welcome back to the podcast, Violet Lang. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. So, um, so yeah, so borderline personality disorder, um, is I think kind of a confusing name, but I believe that originally it was called that because, um, people that have BPD are sort of on the border between neurosis and psychosis. That was sort of the DSM sort of definition, but I think it's worth mentioning that they, they are, the field is looking at renaming it emotional regulation disorder. And I think that's a a lot more accurate because one of the hallmarks of BPD can be extreme mood swings and extreme, um, you know, feelings of abandonment will trigger sort of extreme behavior. So whether that's, you know, something like throwing, throwing something at you or raging at you or whatever it is, there's sort of a threshold point that someone with BPD hits where after that point they have trouble regulating their emotions. It's like they go into a rage state or, you know, um, yeah, I think Violet can talk a little bit more about this, but basically there's this threshold point. It's kind of like when water boils and then like now the water is boiling and it's just kind of out of control. So I I think we're going to be referring to this as BPD throughout this episode, but I just want to put that forth that emotional regulation disorder feels a lot more accurate to me in terms of what I've seen and what I've experienced. Absolutely. And I just want to add as well that sometimes it looks like a very outward display of emotion but sometimes it also looks like the silent treatment or withdrawal or all of a sudden they're not there and there's this eerie passive aggressiveness. So it can very much display and, and intensity of emotional fireworks, but it can also feel like the rug's kind of being pulled out from under you. Yeah. And um, in this episode, we're going to be focusing mostly on men who have been in relation romantic relationship with a woman with borderline. So about 75%, um, this is what I've in my research come across about 75% of people with BPD are women. So most people with BPD are women, but about 25% are men. So it's not only, we're just doing this one constellation because this is what I've repeatedly seen with my clients. This is not the only constellation, but most of what we're going to focus on is being in a, being as a man in a romantic relationship with a BPD woman, whether you're co-parenting with that person or not. 
Um, so yeah, so I think we've sort of described what BPD is. Um, I want to make sure that we're kind of keeping it concrete in the world. So I thought we could cover the uh, five familiar fights <laughs> that happen when you are with a borderline person. And again, we're going to be just talking about like if you're a man with a woman. So we'll be using those pronouns. Um, so uh, maybe we can alternate. I'll do the first one, um, Violet. So these are five familiar sites. And this is from um, a site called bpdcentral.com, which we'll be talking about more in the future, has really, really good resources. Um, these are the top five familiar fights. And um, the way they describe it is having a borderline loved one means that having that it's deja vu all over it again, feeling much of the time. You may feel like you get stuck in these five familiar fights with no clue about how, why it's happening, how you got there or how to get out. So the first one is the, it's your fault fight, which is, um, this is a quote from someone. He says, once my BPD girlfriend snapped at me for looking through some DVDs the wrong way. I asked her in a very even tone of voice, what are you getting upset about? For the rest of the day, she sulked and gave me the silent treatment. And I think this is, <laughs> um, I think this is a good one to uh, pause on a little bit because I think that one of the confusing things when you're relating with someone with BPD is that very very small things can set them off, and it can feel like oh this is actually about the DVDs when really it's not <laughs> about the DVDs at all. It's actually mostly about the BPD person's emotional state at that time. So if they're already feeling stressed or anxious, or if there's whatever's happening in their internal world, this extra thing on top of it, whether it's the DVDs or it's that you toasted the bagel wrong, or it's that you didn't leave the door open or you did leave the door open or whatever it is, it can be really crazy making on your side because it's like there, it feels sometimes like there aren't any rules like, what the fuck? Like last time I left the door open and you got pissed at me. And this time I shut the door and you got pissed at me. And it, it feels like you can't win because the rules are always changing. And, and that's true. You are not crazy. The rules are always changing because it's really more about that person's emotional state than about you and your behavior. Um, so that's the first one is the kind of like, it's your fault. And the second one is like a no win situation. It's the heads I win and tails you lose fight. So the quote that they give is my mother is the master of double binds. When I call her, as soon as I get home at the end of my day, she's short and rude because she's in the middle of something. But if I wait until later in the evening to call, she says in an accusatory way, you've been home for how long and you didn't call me. So, you know, you're in a no win scenario when you're damned if you do and damned if you don't people with BPD are consistently inconsistent. Yeah. Um, number three is the projection fight. This is the, there's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with you. So, um, this is really common and the origin of it is, um, the way they describe it is that people often try to avoid feeling bad about their own traits and behaviors by attributing them to someone else, which is a common defense mechanism known as projection and those with BPD sort of take it to an extreme. So something like this might be, you need to get therapy. There's something wrong with you. I don't know what your deal is, but you just keep saying this and there's something wrong with you. So sort of projecting onto you the, the, the truth about that, about them. Yes. And the fourth fight is, I hate you, don't leave me, which makes me laugh because I've definitely had BPD tendencies. And then I've also noticed these in partners before. And the example is I'm totally confused. My BPD boyfriend broke up with me on Tuesday. Then on Friday, I wanted to know what I was doing over the weekend. I remember one night we had a great time together and had great sex. Then he started a fight over nothing the next morning. And it says when people get too close, people with BPD feel engulfed. In turn, they distance themselves to avoid feeling controlled, but then BPDs feel neglected, even abandoned. So then they try to get closer again and the cycle repeats. And again, this can be kind of crazy making because it's like you, you come close to her, you, you start feeling closeness, and then all of a sudden she picks a fight or does something to push you away. And then later she gets mad at you for not coming close again. <laughs> so there's this weird push pull that happens because, and the, I think the key word there is engulfed, which is maybe not a word that you've heard before, but um, there's a feeling of almost like being suffocated. If you, if someone gets too close to you, you feel engulfed. You feel like you might 
be swallowed up by them. This is usually an unconscious thing. This isn't something that you're necessarily aware of, but the fear of engulfment is pretty common, especially for children of someone with BPD. And um, I just wanted to slow that down because I think that's the, the, when closeness happens, when intimacy happens, there can be this fear that gets triggered and then unconscious behavior can be like lashing out or pushing away or other strange things that happen, picking a fight, things like that, that can feel really uncomfortable and confusing, just really confusing if you are sort of the recipient of that behavior. Cause it's like, everything was going so well. I don't understand. Like I did this one thing, right? Like I left, I left the, you know, the humidifier unplugged and she wigged out, like she wigged out. And again, it's not about the humidifier. It's not about that. It's just the closest thing that that person reached for to justify their extreme feelings of overwhelm. And then they, they freak out, but it's really not about that sort of precipitating incident. And I also just want to layer in, this is where attachment style really happens. And it feels to me like extreme BP or BPD is an extreme form of anxious or simultaneously anxious avoidant personality or attachment style where they're anxious if they're not close enough with someone, but once they get close, they want to be avoidant. Yeah. And I guess I just also want to echo what Violet said, which is I myself have BPD tendencies and the way I think of it is sort of like a zero to 10 scale. So eight, nine, 10 would be like kind of more diagnosable borderline personality disorder. Everyone has these tendencies, right? No one wants to feel rejected. Everyone wants to feel loved. No one wants to feel abandoned. I don't know any human that's healthy that wants that. We're social animals. It's, it's hardwired into us, but there's a scale of behavior and there's a scale of being able to regulate and come back and sort of, for example, apologize or take responsibility for your behavior that I think people with BPD, actual BPD, are not equipped to do. They, they're not really capable of doing that. So that would be like eight, nine, 10. Um, and then most of us are somewhere else on the scale. Um, but just to kind of like name that, that um, there's something particularly difficult, I think, about BPD versus other sort of mental health um, disorders or whatever word you want to use because, because it, it does sound, quote unquote, it, it can sound logical, right? Whereas I think something like schizophrenia is a bit more obvious that it's outside of the realm of what the rest of us are experiencing. Whereas like you unplug the humidifier, I told you specifically to plug it in, can kind of sound logical, so there's this weird thing that happens where it's like, oh, that sort of makes sense. But um, one of my friends put it, what did she say? She was like, it's like upside down logic land. Like you're like, you're, you're adjacent to logic, you're near logic, but it doesn't quite line up, but it's like, it, anyways, so that's why it can be called uh, crazy making behavior. Okay, the last fight is the testing fight. Before I recovered from BPD, I would tell people, I'm just testing you to see how much you love me. I knew that I couldn't start with a full a full-blown BPD rage. So I started slowly and softly. With each test I set forth and the person passed, I upped the ante and said, if you loved me, you would do this or that. People usually accepted the most outrageous and inappropriate behavior to maintain the relationship. And then it says, you might think that once the non-BP passes the tests, their borderline, their borderline loved one would feel more secure, but that doesn't happen. Instead, people with BPD think, why would a normal healthy person take the abuse? There must be something wrong with them. And just to name, that's probably not a conscious thought. <laughs> like a lot of this is um, more subconscious or under the surface, but it is worth sort of noting that part about tests. Cause I think that's something that a number of, of our clients have experienced of like you, if you loved me, you would do this. Or if you loved me, you would know that this is not okay. Or that this, or that you should have done that. If you loved me, you would know that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, so maybe, um, Violet, we can touch a little bit on like, where does this come from? We don't have to spend forever on it, but like, where does BPD come from? Why do people have this kind of tendency in their systems? So in my experience, BPD comes from our attachment and our parents the way that we create our relationships when we're young with our parents or our caregivers. And usually it's been described to me that someone with BPD or BPD tendencies will 
kind of pass that down or, or will create an environment in which one or all of their children kind of inherit these tendencies or someone whose parent is narcissistic. And there is an overlap between narcissism and BPD. Everyone with narcissism, the way that I've heard it also has BPD, but everyone with BPD doesn't necessarily have narcissism. Narcissism is a more extreme version of BPD. But if you grew up in an environment where your parents are really hot and cold and volatile and you feel like you're walking on eggshells and the rules are always changing to your point, or it feels like there's this subtle manipulation or that you're supposed to be managing their needs more than they're managing your needs, then you can internalize basically this sense of not knowing what is going to happen. And and in that lack of security and that lack of certainty, you create stories, stories that your partner doesn't love you, stories that, you know, you're a bad person. It's very black and white thinking, like they're bad or I'm bad. And so we're always trying to, we, I'm talking as if I have BPD, but you know, I have, I had this childhood experience. And so I think that's why it feels so familiar. So it almost feels like, in this trance, this trance of uncertainty. And when that trance gets triggered, you're looking for anything to provide some sort of ground, even if that ground, you know, is destructive, like making the other person wrong, making yourself wrong, totally lashing out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, um, I think the, the main thing to, the main thing to understand is it's usually passed down, like you just said, Violet, and um, it's able to be broken. The cycle is able to be broken. So that's part of why we're doing this episode is it doesn't have to be like this forever. And my suspicion is that most most of you listening to this have, um, if you have related with someone with BPD, it's probably been um, a partner and could also possibly have been a parent. So many people who really end up relating with, and when I say relating, like getting married to or dating or repeatedly dating women that are emotionally volatile, that are, you know, roller coaster feels like a roller coaster. It feels like it's exciting sometimes, but it's also really frustrating or like um, unpredictable, right? I, all of, roller coaster, all of these words. If you find yourself repeatedly with women like that, it's possible slash likely that there was some kind of borderline in your life when you were young. So probably mom or dad, possibly a sibling, um, but it's not like it's very common that that is is also part of your experience. And one thing I've noticed um, in our clients is that a lot of times the magic phrase is, yeah, my parents fought a lot. There was a lot of fighting. My parents fought a lot. And I've, I've noticed when I've sort of dug down and kind of gotten more information, that's often that often it was mom, sometimes it was dad, but there was a pattern of she would um, explode and lash out and there would be, and it would be a lot of emotional chaos. She might threaten to leave. Like she'd pack up all her stuff and get in the car and be like, I'm leaving. Sometimes she actually would leave, sometimes not, but just that sort of like, extreme heightened, um, urgency, all of this sort of like extremeness that feels really, um, like kind of like the end of the world, right? Like if you imagine being six or eight and you don't know if mom is coming back, that's really, really stressful and sort of teaches you that it it sort of like teaches your nervous system that this is quote unquote normal, or this is familiar that a woman is this extreme and that that this is what love feels like that love feels confusing. There's distancing. Then there's random closeness. It's, there's no rhyme or reason. It's all over the place. And nobody wants to be in a relationship like that. It's not like the men that I've worked with that have a BPD partner wanted to be in a relationship like that. A lot of times it's our nervous system just sort of really attracting what is familiar because if we haven't yet done the work to break the cycle, this is just something that humans do. We just tend to attract the same kinds of patterns that we had when we were growing up. And I think a good example of this is my own relationship in my, in my early twenties, my first serious relationship was with a man. Um, but the experience I had in the relationship was familiar from how it was relating with mom. So for example, um, if I didn't hear from him, like if he hadn't texted me, I would freak out and be like, Oh my God, he doesn't love me anymore. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I would sort of like go into this crazy spiral. Then I would hear from him and that would sort of dissipate. Um, he was often very passive aggressive and he would 
pull away and give me the silent treatment and be very cold. But when I asked him about it, he would say there was nothing wrong or like, don't worry about it. But I could feel the distance. I could feel the, the sort of like, I don't know what the word is, but like the cold war kind of thing. And it would feel really unsafe to me. So I was sort of constantly like, I was constantly tracking, is he mad at me? And my nervous system was only like calm. If I was like, okay, he's not mad at me. Like we're okay. Therefore I'm okay. So there was no real me outside of that relationship. Like I lived and died by how we were. So if we were okay, I was okay. If we were not okay, my whole nervous system was like in overdrive. I was panicking, you know, I'm overstating it a little bit, but not a lot. And it was exhausting. It was so exhausting. And so that actual relationship, right, was a sexual relationship. We had great sex. It was a it was a man-woman dynamic relationship, but my body, my nervous system was repeating this pattern from my childhood, which was the emotional roller coaster of dealing with someone with borderline. So it wasn't the same person, right? It, I wasn't relating with mom. I was relating with my boyfriend, but the experience in my body was just so tiring and exhausting. And it was, um, you know, exhausting to the point where I was like, I kind of want to die. Like I remember having this moment when I was like, uh, somebody was talking about getting hit by lightning for some reason. And I remember thinking like, that sounds like it would be a relief. And then I remember right on the heels of that thought being like, I don't think that's normal. I think there's something wrong. If, if, if someone's talking about getting struck by lightning and I'm like, that sounds good. I'll take it. Like I'm probably depressed or I'm probably, you know, there's probably something wrong. Like that's a pretty extreme reaction, but I was so kind of in it. And I think that that's an important, um, element to sort of highlight is how damaging and destructive it can be relating in this way over time. Cause it really took a toll on my self-esteem and my sense of self and just my whole, I was so depressed and anxious and just, it was not a good, it was not a good relationship. And I've seen that repeatedly in, in our clients that it just, it takes such a toll over time. And yeah, I guess I just wanted to cover all of that. You, there were some things you said that really made it clear that typically when you're relating with someone with BPD, it is inherently a codependent relationship because the person with BPD doesn't know how to have a sense of self with self-awareness, self-regulation without that other person. It's almost like their nervous system is reliant on the other person's nervous system in order to help them feel safe. And yet also in order to have a target for when they're not feeling safe to project things on and blame and, and create all of that. And the other thing that's important too, is people manifest their, the, the BPD symptoms manifest in different ways, including eating disorders or alcohol or substance abuses, or, you know, threats, like you said, to leave the relationship or to hurt themselves. And so even if someone maybe doesn't seem that emotionally volatile, they might be coping with that emotional volatility in ways that make it difficult to assess until they're in a time of stress. And what I've found within myself and within the clients I've worked with and the other relationships that I've seen is, you know, someone with BPD or BPD strong tendencies can maybe go like three, six, nine months, but then there's like a massive rupture where it feels like the relationship almost can't repair itself. But the BPD person is so reliant on getting the repair that they'll prostrate themselves or do whatever it takes to repair the relationship because it does literally feel like they're losing themselves if they lose the relationship. But then the cycle becomes faster and shorter. And then all of a sudden, the fights are happening every other day instead of it used to be like three to six months. I mean, I remember growing up, my mom would always be like, oh, well, your dad seems like he's been better lately. And I personally think that my dad has narcissism and my mom has BPD versus my dad having BPD and my mom being an enabler. But the dynamic is, is such that it's unpredictable. It's that intermittent reward, intermittent pain. And then it does seem to amplify and and keep, you know, um, getting faster and quicker and more detrimental. Yeah. And that's something that we were touching on briefly before the call is how I think there's something unique about borderline where it's, there are a lot of people that are high functioning with borderline. And so, you know, um, and again, I'm going to use women as the example, cause it's kind of what we're talking about here, but 
you know, my, my mom had borderline and she had, she was getting her PhD in psychology. She was um, really respected in her field. She was quite good at what she did. She, she was high functioning. And I think that's something that can be confusing. You know, I have someone else in my life with a, a borderline, um, ex-partner, um, really, really smart, charismatic, funny, uh, fun to be around. Like there's a lot of, um, characteristics that can make it confusing. Oh, there's no way that person could have some kind of mental health issue going on, but like there is, there obviously is. And BPD is not necessarily apparent to everyone that person interacts with, right? They can go through their whole day with people at work and it's never going to be apparent, but for the people they're intimate with, for the people where attachment is showing up. So partners, children, um, siblings, parents, you know, people in their inner circle, that's generally where it does show up. And so there can be this weird, like, um, what is it? Not Jekyll and Hyde exactly, but sort of like, I remember someone talking about her mother was in a borderline rage and, and was like raging at her. And then the phone rang and she picked up the phone as like a Stepford wife, like a perfect, like, hello, how's it going? And it was just this bizarre, like changing of the mask, you know? And I don't think that's at all un, um, common. I think that's something that can happen. So it can be a bit hidden to anyone outside, and that can make it even harder to kind of grapple with if you're on the inside, because it feels like you're the only one seeing the truth. And it's just, yeah, very crazy making, at least. Yeah, that was my experience. And it seems like there's a lot of compartmentalization, like you said, being in a rage, but then seeming like everything's okay. And that compartment compartmentalization happens from a very young age because it's hard to internalize, oh, my parent is actually not safe. So then there must be something wrong with me or I must have caused this for them to react this way. So there's not a lot of energy normally put towards wholeness and integration. And that's why, to your point, it can seem like everything on the surface is okay because all of their energy is going into making sure things look good from the outside instead of addressing these shadow parts. Yeah, that's a really good point. So speaking of shadow parts, um, we're going to briefly go over the four kind of archetypes of borderlines um, borderline people. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I do think it's worth just touching on. So there are sort of four archetypes that are how BPD can show up in a person. And, um, Violet, you're going to help me remember these, but it's a witch, hermit, queen, and waif. And waif. So, um, which one do you want to start with? We can alternate or something. I want to mention first that this is from a book by Christine Ann Lawson about understanding the borderline mother, helping her children transcend the intense, unpredictable, and volatile relationship. And it's not just for, for mothers. I've you know seen these in men too. And actually, she talks about the corresponding four masculine archetypes that go along with each of these uh, archetypes. So for instance, the waif tends to attract someone that's called, in Christine Lawson's terms, the frog prince. And we can talk about all of those. But before we do, I just want to say for anyone that's like on pins and needles thinking, oh my God, is that me? Um, someone with very severe BPD will not seek help. Just like someone with narcissism, rare, I shouldn't say will not. It's rare for them. Very rare, very rare. Very rare. Yeah. So if you're listening to this episode, you're already curious, you're already seeking help. You may have tendencies, you may attract partners who have tendencies, but you can get through this. I just want to share that and build a strong partnership. And then also what I found is in my own experience, I would toggle between being attracted to someone with BPD or narcissism. And then in the next relationship, having been hurt so bad in that one, I'd find someone in quotations safe. Someone who I could kind of beat up where I felt like I was dating down, like I was, you know, dating someone who maybe wasn't the right fit, but I would use it as a justification for enacting my bad behavior that I wasn't able to enact in the previous relationship with someone who was more BPD or narcissistic than I was. So just because you're a man who's attracted women who have BPD tendencies doesn't mean that you're one of these four masculine archetypes. Like I mentioned, the frog prince, um, so don't, please don't like paint yourself with that brush, but just understand that there are certain matchings or, or pairings that tend to happen with these archetypes. Yeah. There's certain, it's sort of, yeah, it's a frequent, it's like, uh, the, often these go together, but not always like peanut butter and jelly, but really dysfunctional. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's going to be the episode title, Dysfunctional PB&J. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Let's start, let's start with WAIF, because I have them in my mind organized in the same order that she has in her book. Um, the WAIF is oftentimes referred to as kind of like Princess Diana, someone who seems just so innocent and so youthful and so vulnerable, but also helpless. Like she can't do things on her own. And then that helplessness actually sometimes forces her to become even more independent, but then she resents people for it. She's like, but I've done everything for myself my whole life. And all I want is just someone to take care of me. And so, you know, the frog prince in quotations comes in and is her rescuer. He sweeps her off her feet. He takes care of her. He helps her relax. He soothes her wounds. But the waif is kind of like a black hole. Like it's, it's never enough. No matter how much you take care of her, it's it's never enough for her to feel secure or feel confident or feel capable. And then she will also start to push, you know, push you away. So that's why, you know, um, Prince Charles and Princess Diana, the frog prince personality or archetype kind of then ends up being like, you know what? Fine. Like, see ya. This is too much work anyway. I've given you everything and it's still not enough. Like, I'm, they, they tend to either cheat or leave the relationship. They turn into the so-called turn in from a prince into a frog and, and hop away. <laughs> um, but the, the, the waif, um, the waif comes from never feeling like her childhood needs got met. And so she has to do it all herself, but she never addresses the inner child that deeply wants to feel cared for and taken care of. Yeah. You want to keep going? I feel like you've got this. Yeah. Down. And the, the waif, just one other thing is that the waif will present itself um, as like polished and she's got her act together. She won't necessarily appear like everything is falling apart, but as you get to know her, then more and more the vulnerability shows. It's like, oh, you seem so happy and confident. But then like on our eighth date, you like broke down about this thing that happened and it felt like this, you know, dark hole that we couldn't, I couldn't, you know, get you, get you out of, um, and then the waif, when when threatened, will will say that she's going to hurt herself. Will say that she doesn't want to live anymore. Will say that if you don't help her, her life is meaningless and is going to be over. So her way that she she sucks people back in is by enabling or or I mean, um, saying that she's going to self harm. Yeah, and that's that's important. Mm-hmm. And with the waif, one way that you can kind of heal through that if you're dating someone who's the waif is to not rescue, not be the white, you know, the white knight, and then make sure that there's other support. Like, wow, that sounds really tough. Have you talked to your therapist about that? Or, you know, um, re when they're not in like a tailspin reframing, like, yeah, that seems to be hard, but you also seem to do a good job of taking care of yourself or, um, you know, you've, you've created some structures in your life, like reframing things that it's not just, Oh my God, the sky is falling. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to come back to this, but a lot of the work on the side of the non BP is learning how to set boundaries and get support yourself and setting yourself up for success so that you are able to, um, leave if you need to. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Sometimes the solution is not to be in a relationship with this person because it's not possible to fill the black hole that is inside this person. That person needs to get help themselves and you cannot do that for them. And if they are not willing to address it, sometimes the boundary is departing and um, setting boundaries. You know, it's not, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like there's some magical thing you can say or do because I think that's the whole illusion is that, oh, if I just said it right, or if I said it at the right time, or if I said it in the right way, or if I, maybe if I just walk on eggshells enough, it will be okay. And that's the illusion. I think that's the ultimate illusion about it. And really, um, that's just, it's not going to happen until that person chooses to get help. Exactly. Okay. So next up is Hermit. Is it, oh, Hermit. Okay. Yeah. So the next one is the Hermit and the Hermit is primarily afraid, afraid of everything. This is like the hypochondriac, the person who doesn't want to leave her house, who has extreme anxiety, who tends to be very, very withdrawn, which is why it's called the hermit. And then she tends to attract the hunter. The hunter is like, it's okay. You stay at home. I'm going to bring everything you need 
to you. And their relationship doesn't tend to have a lot of intimacy because the hunter is always away from the home and the hermit is always at home, but that's kind of okay by them. Like supposedly, according to the book, this relationship can last a little longer than the other ones because there's not as much of an engulfment since there's so much more separation and there's um, a sense of like, we're just going to mind our own business. You're going to do whatever you're doing outside the house and I'm going to stay in the home. But this one can be really challenging on children because it's like helicopter mom times a thousand, you know, like, oh my God, don't do that. Or this bad thing is going to happen. So there's always a dark cloud about what might happen. And it can feel then like life is dangerous. Love is dangerous. You know, everything in the world is, is dangerous. Yeah. One of my friends had a mom who displayed hermit tendencies and she was like, men only want one thing from you. You have to be careful. Don't go out after dark. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, everything is kind of scary and dangerous. And so my friend was kind of grew up feeling like men were dangerous. And there was a lot of fear about being raped, about being taken advantage of very much sort of taken advantage of like people want to take advantage of you, be careful, protect yourself. And so the messages might sound logical on the surface, but there's this there's this tension, there's this underlying overwhelming fear that is associated with it, which is not sort of, you know, the opposite message is like, like, I trust that you will make good decisions. I trust that you are capable. If you don't feel safe, here's my number. Like kind of teaching someone like you are resourceful, you are resilient. I am here for you. It, it's not the same thing as teaching them the world is dangerous and bad and, and, and that's it. That's the end of the message is the world is dangerous and bad, not there are harms out there and you are capable, you are resourceful. We are going to teach you how to be reliant on yourself and you are fundamentally safe and secure and we are here for you. If something happens, we will get through it together. There's a different tenor to that messaging than kind of like, <gasps> right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It creates a lot of paranoia and a lot of distrust in, in life. And I've also, this is just my own thought, but it feels like a lot of people that have experienced this tendency or have had it in their orbit also have like autoimmune things or have to like be really are really sensitive to their environment. Yeah. A lot of allergies, things like that. Yeah. Like the world, the world is actually dangerous to, Mm -hmm. to them in some ways. Okay. Next is queen. Queen. Okay. So the queen is like, I'm the best, I'm the boss and everything around me is an expression of my bestness. Um, This one is the most similar to narcissism because there is an air of like, I'm, I'm the best and I'm the only one. And the queen's counterpart tends to be a king who believes the same thing. And she gives examples in the book that like there's this couple would be so focused on their lavish lifestyle that they would just leave the kids at home for like two days, way too young before they're, you know, capable of really caring for themselves. So they don't have the same um, sense of needing or wanting to take care of others. It's all about the image and also all about control. Uh, Another example they gave was, like a, a, a queen mother would parade her newborn around on a pillow like she was a jewel, like the baby was a jewel. But as soon as the baby was old enough to have her own needs and wants or throw temper tantrums, the mom wanted nothing to do with the baby. Yeah. And I think another sort of example is the queen always wants the attention. And so if attention is on someone else in the group or in the family, she will unconsciously find a way to pull the attention. So for example, there are people, um, you know, when I was learning about borderline, I got on BPD central and I I joined a bunch of support groups, which is something we'll talk about towards the end. Um, But I remember a story of someone who was setting a boundary around her mother attending her wedding because she knew that if her mother attended the wedding, she wasn't going to be able, like the attention would not be on the bride. There was absolutely no way that the attention would be on the bride. The mom was going to find a way to make it about her. Whether it was like, you didn't call me and you didn't tell me and I'm wearing the wrong thing and everyone's looking at me and whatever it is. Again, it's not conscious, but there's a, the queen must have attention on her 
or she feels like she might die. And this is not a conscious thing, but there's, there's something about like, I'm important. I must have the attention of the party or the neighborhood or whatever it is, or I, or I lose my sense of self. It's a great way to describe it. And then the fifth or the fourth one, excuse me, is the witch. And the witch is paired with the fisherman (laughs) and the witch is willing to do anything to kind of punish others. So she has the most like vindictive quality of cross me and I will, you know, punish you. I think about this oftentimes, a lot of these archetypes actually marry up with fairy tales, but I think of this as um, like the, the witch in Snow White, you know, she's, she's calculating, she's cold, she's going to do whatever it takes to get her away. On the surface, it may seem like everything's fine, but she's the most likely to go into violence and go into rage. You know, the, the, um, the waif will go into sadness, the hermit will go into fear, the queen will go into arrogance or being demanding, and the witch will go into rage and sometimes violence. Yeah, the witch in uh, Into the Woods as well. And the witch entangled. I don't know if people listening have seen those movies, but if you rewatch them at some point, you'll see sort of the emotional manipulation and the kind of the dualism of like, I'm keeping you trapped in the tower. And when you try to escape, I'm, I feel wounded. How could you, how dare you leave me? How dare you leave me? I'm going to go kill your prince, right? How dare you leave me? I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to punish you for wanting to leave me because my ultimate fear is that I will be abandoned. Um, but the, the, yeah, the vindictiveness, the, the viciousness, like the quality of viciousness, I think is important to highlight here, especially around um, splitting behavior. So Violet alluded to this earlier, but splitting is kind of like all black or all white, right? So you were my husband, we had children together, now I feel abandoned by you for whatever reason. Maybe you tried to set a boundary. I don't know. Now you are the worst father in the world. I hate everything about you. I will spend all of this money to get back at you. I will, um, you know, there are BPD women who will call child services and allege abuse that hasn't necessarily happened. They will call neighbors, friends, family, tell them a lie about something that to say that you were abusing the kids or whatever it was because they are trying to destroy your reputation and or you because they feel wounded. And so they will lash out in pretty vicious ways um, with, you know, sometimes quite a lot of intelligence calculating behavior behind it. So it's not just sort of like a random lashing out. It's like, I have decided that you are evil and I'm going to take you down. Like I will annihilate you. And the other thing that happens is they will, if they're not doing that themselves, they will have other people do it for them. So that's kind of like the fisherman is, as she describes it is he's willing to go out and, you know, kill kill the fish or go out and like be in the storms or enact, enact brutality because that's, he does her bidding for her. And so a weird dynamic can be, if you find yourself, you know, hearing a woman say like, oh, that person did X, Y, Z. And you feel like in order to protect her honor or in order to make her happy, you're willing to go pick a fight. You're willing to go, you know, do something rude or, or mean, um, And so this also can, it feels to me very slippery, kind of like the waif sometimes feels slippery, that it may seem like, oh, well, this person is pure hearted. But if you look at the constellation of people around them, they may be more more sinister. And an example is, you know, growing up, my dad would oftentimes call it wrestling, but he would like pin us down and kind of torture us like Chinese water torture and, you know, pounding on our chest and not letting us get up and, and all of these things. And my mom would be in the kitchen and she'd be like, oh, stop, like really stop. But then she, it seemed like she was getting a, a rise out of it. Like she wouldn't actually make him stop. She was, it was almost like she was, um, she wasn't telling him to do those things, but they had this weird symbiotic relationship where she never once like stood up for us when we were getting tortured. Yeah. Which is creepy. It's really creepy. Super. But I didn't realize that at the time, it wasn't until literally my early thirties that I realized that she wasn't 
you know, she, she to me is kind of like a waif witch. And so she wasn't helpless in that situation. Like she was co-creating that situation. So it can, it can be really crazy making because a lot of these archetypes present as really admirable qualities. And it, it makes you think that you're a bad person for thinking that there's something maybe a bit off with them. Yeah. Um, another, uh, sort of, I think having the, the TV movies thing connected can help. Um, if any of you've watched the Sopranos, the, there are several women with BPD tendencies and the creator, I think it was either the creator or the writer. I think it was the creator of the the show, David Chase. Um, his mother had BPD. And so some of the characters, including Tony's mother, Livia and his two girlfriends, um, all sort of showed symptoms of BPD. So I think it can be helpful just honestly to see it on the screen, to see it represented and understand like, oh yeah, that feels really familiar just as to like get a sense of it. And I also want to mention that it seems like the media glorifies what is actually BPD tendencies. They want women to stay infantized. You know, they want women to either act like the queen or be helpless like the waif or, you know, there's just ways that we kind of glamorize this. And I think it's much, much more common than people realize. This isn't just some fringe concept. It feels like it's fringe because people don't talk about it enough. But I I would say that like 20, 30% of the women that I know have BPD tendencies or have been around people with, you know, BPD in their life. Yeah. And it's actually, I think in DSM, the diagnosed, and there are many, many people who are never diagnosed with BPD. But my understanding is that of those that are, people diagnosed with BPD are more than the number diagnosed with schizophrenia and, um, what's now known as DID, but used to be known as multiple personality disorder combined. So it's a lot more than we necessarily think. And yeah, that kind of brings us to like, okay, well, what the hell do you do about it? What the fuck do you do if you are currently relating or you have an ex uh, in your life with borderline tendencies? And this is, I would say the vast, not the vast majority, sorry, um, a very significant number of the men with whom we work have this in their life. So either an ex partner who they're still relating with because of custody. So they have their co-parenting with a woman with borderline, or they've just noticed that they've attracted several women of this ilk. And they're sort of like, I'm tired of the roller coaster. I don't really want to do that. I don't necessarily trust myself to attract the right kinds of women. You know, I'm, I want something else. I want something better. I want a healthy relationship. And, um, so what do you do when that's what's, you know, what has shown up or what you're currently, let's say co-parenting with, um, what would you say if someone asked you that? There are a few different layers. I mean, one layer is just understanding what's going on and realizing that you're not crazy. You're not making this up and that's helpful, but that isn't maybe enough to actually change. So this podcast is a great start looking at resources like bpdcentral.com is a great start or the book, understanding the borderline mother by Christine Lawson. There's also then practitioners who can help you repattern. So like Mel and Jason do the pillars program for men, which is an amazing way to redo your patterns of attraction, to build resiliency in your nervous system, to be around other men that are working on themselves and knowing that you're deserving of a healthy relationship, not just a relationship that you've settled for that mimics your parents. And then there's also therapists that specialize in BPD or working with people who are uh, and attracting people with BPD. And I think the deepest thing, which is really hard to recognize it within ourselves is that when you're in relationship with someone with BPD tendencies or BPD, that's happening because there's enabling, like we're enabling that person to, to do that every time we continue to be in relationship with them without setting boundaries. So I'm not going to lie, like this is, is hard work. And that's why it's really important to do in community. 
there's also constellation therapy, which can be really helpful for understanding your family constellation and the role that you played, because perhaps this doesn't normally come up in your life. Maybe you don't normally attract someone with the BPD, but in a certain constellation at a party, you know, someone is playing the role that reminds you of your brother and someone is playing the role that reminds you of your father. And, you know, there, there's a woman who now you seem to be instantly attracted to because of the constellation and in the room. And I'm, I'm minimizing or kind of, um, making that seem simpler than it really is. But there's a lot of things that you can do. And the other thing is really making sure that your current partner or future partner, that they're doing their work. And it's easy to kind of say, oh, well, you know, they're reading books or they have good friends. And um, someone with BPD tendencies doesn't want to look like they're bad. So they will hide this as much as they can. And then when it does come up, they'll blame you. And then they'll say that they're doing their work in quotations, but they might be kind of skirting around the work, like running marathons or doing things really physical, even doing yoga. Like that's not actually doing the work. Like it's helpful for regulating your nervous system. But to me, doing the work means you have to do it in relationship with someone else through relationship. We heal our relationships and our attachment style. That's why the therapist or pillars of presence group, or there's a woman named Carla Camus, who I worked with and did some sessions with. She's actually an NLP person through NLP Marin, which is neuro-linguistic programming, but she's very familiar with BPD and she led a retreat. This is pre-COVID that I went to. I forget um, the other co-leader, but it was like a three-day long intensive about understanding BPD. And there were exercises at the end as simple as mirroring. Like you stand across from someone else and they make arm movements and you mirror them. And then you make our movements and they mirror you and it helps you get a grasp on reality. Like, Oh, reality means we mirror each other because in BPD, there's not a lot of mirroring. It's like, you have to mirror them, but they never mirror you back. I think that's the thing to, to note is like, if you feel like you're going all the way over to her side all the time and she's never coming to your side, that's a signal that there might be some BPD happening And if it feels like you're always the one apologizing and you're never getting an apology for something that went wrong or something that wasn't okay, that's another sign. Um, It doesn't, it's not always obvious. Sometimes it's a little more subtle. Um, I will tell one story from my experience with my mom. I was in college and I I knew this was going to be an issue. I was going to go backpacking over the summer. And this was, I think spring, right. And I was calling my mom to tell her and I felt dread in my gut. I was like really nervous. I was like, Oh my God, what's going to happen. I felt so like sick to my stomach. Call my mom. Sure enough. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go backpacking this summer. And she's like, you don't love me. How could you do this to me? I can't believe you're not coming home. You're a bad daughter. Um, you're ungrateful after everything I've done for you, whatever you know, combination of these things she said, these were like familiar tropes hung up on me and then gave me the silent treatment for three weeks. Wouldn't talk to me, nothing like that. And at the time I was, I was like basically in a codependent relationship with my mom when I was in the house with her and then separating and going to college, I sort of started to see like, Oh, I I guess other people don't have this kind of relationship. Anyways, the reason that's significant is that it was so incredibly uncomfortable for me to be in those three weeks and not call her and grovel because that's really the pattern, right? It's like, oh no, she's mad at me. I have to like call her and apologize and tell her I'm so sorry. I'm such a bad daughter. I did something wrong, you know, whatever. And I think that that is frequently a pattern that we see in the guys we work with of like, I do something quote unquote wrong. She's pissed at me. And then I want things to be okay. Like I want it to be copacetic. I want us to have a good night. I want, I just want it to go away. So I'm going to go apologize, even though it's not really my fault. It wasn't really my fault, but I want it to be okay. And there's this sort of compulsiveness that happens of like, I want it to be okay. I want it to be okay. I need to get that love and attention back. Therefore I will prostrate myself. And, um, what I noticed was that, um, when I called my dad, like this was the difference between calling mom and calling dad. I called my mom and I was like, I'm going backpacking. And my mom like freaked the fuck out and hung up on me. I called my dad and I was like, I'm going backpacking. And he was like, oh, cool. Do you need any money? 
And so the difference, right, which I, which is why I told this story is a conscious functional um, parent wants to provide for their child emotionally and in other ways. And so what my mom did was I said, I have this need or desire. I want to do this thing, you know, and she made it about her. Like you're abandoning me. Your desire to go backpacking is about me and not loving me versus recognizing like I'm, I'm a person outside of (laughs) kind of outside of her. And um, that's kind of what my dad did, which was, Oh, can I provide for you? And so if you grew up with a parent where they were sort of making you the parent, like you have to take care of me, that's a, that can be a sign of borderline or, and, um, and sometimes in relationship as well, like your job is to provide for me. I don't provide for you. I don't feel the need to provide for you. There's none of that kind of mirroring that Violet was just talking about. And there's that, there's just like a lack of attunement, right? Like when she talked about the queen and the king that go to a party and leave their kids alone for two days, they're not attuning to the needs. They're not, they don't have the attunement necessary to say, these are beings, these are beings I need to provide for. I need to provide for them. They don't just exist to make me look good or fill in the blank. Um, so I really love all of those resources that you gave Violet. And the thing that I would add is, what the the book that really um first of all i remember the first time someone talked about borderline and i had never heard of it and she this was when i lived in argentina and she kind of like just tossed it out you know offhand but she was talking about her ex-boyfriend and there was just something about the way that she was talking about like he would just get really really mad and she would feel kind of small and scared and it just felt kind of familiar i was like huh that sounds really familiar. Um, but I didn't really look into it at the time. And then, um, I actually ended up setting boundaries, setting boundaries with my mother before I knew about borderline. So good for me. That's actually really hard to do. Um, but then about a year later, I was gifted the book, stop walking on eggshells, stop walking on eggshells, which is kind of like, for me, it was the gateway book, right? So it was like, the entrance to the land of like, oh my God, I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. And this, this stuff that's been happening to me actually has a name and other people have studied it like, whoa. So, um, it depends on where you are in your journey. If you're listening to this and you are familiar with borderline, you've probably read stop walking on eggshells, but I would say as a gateway, I really got a lot out of that and it helped me to feel less crazy and understand like, just like the landscape was like, Oh wow, this is like how it works. And the other thing I really liked about stop walking on eggshells is it has really practical information about setting boundaries and like actual phrases to use and things like that. But I want to highlight what Violet said, which is reading a book is not enough. Reading two books is not enough. If this is something that's going on in your life, if you're co-parenting with a borderline person, if you are dating a borderline person, if this feels familiar to you, what we're talking about here, it's important that you do take action beyond just reading a book or listening to a podcast. And I have a number of people in my life that have gotten talk therapy um, from talk therapists that are not familiar with borderline, I would not recommend that. I think it can be even more crazy making. It can make you feel like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not, not the best. Um, I know when I was going through stuff with my ex-boyfriend, I had, I had a therapist, a talk therapist and it was like, okay. I was with him for like three months. Then I switched and the woman I switched to was familiar with BPD and it was like night and day. I mean, it was completely different. It was so much better. And I just felt like I was able to assert myself and she was able to help me kind of hold my, like hold my sense of self because it's so seductive to want to fix it and to want to just apologize and just to make it better. And just to get, you know, the, the, um, the peace back, right. Quote unquote peace. Like I put that in quotes because what peace really means is you sacrifice yourself for the borderline. That's what peace is. It's not real peace. It's not the same thing but it can be very seductive. So I would say, yeah, stop walking on eggshells as, as a gateway into other things. And then, um, just kind of everything that Violet mentioned, you know, getting support yourself, getting support yourself and recognizing, really recognizing and internalizing this person may never get help. 
this person may never choose to do this and to do the work. And if that's the case, what are my choices? What am I going to be, what am I going to do? And, um, the thing that I want to highlight, especially that Violet mentioned is community and getting into community, because that's really what it's kind of like, if you're a plant, you can think about like planting yourself in the right soil. Like you want to be surrounded by other plants that have like root systems that are interconnected so that you are held because the storms of the borderline are so extreme, you know, that it'll like rip you up and send you out into the forest. But if you have the supports around you, you can help ground and you can help, you can stay in that good soil and you can stay kind of supported. So whatever that looks like, whether that's doing a program like Pillars, which Jason and I run, and we are familiar with this, very familiar with this pattern, or um, I really like bpdcentral.com because they have a ton of online support groups that are very, very specific. So for example, they have a support group for adult children of parents with BPD. So that's obviously, that's what it sounds like, but they also have a support group for um, partners of people with BPD. So this is, I'm currently married to someone with BPD and I am staying. So they have partnered and staying. They also have partnered and leaving, right? So I'm partnered with a BPD right now and I am leaving. Partnered thinking about leaving. And then they have partnered um, co-parenting. So I have, I have split up with my BPD partner, but I'm now co-parenting with them. And you really want to get in a community that reflects where you're at. Because honestly, one of the most healing things for me was joining um, <laughs> adult children of BPD parents and just reading other people's stories. I was like, oh my God, that happened to me. And that happened to me. And, um, you know, my mom used to... Uh, she used to get mad at me and then she would go to her room. She'd slam the door to her room, very hermit-like, right? Like I've retreated, I'm, I'm in my cave and um, I would be expected to go and grovel. And sometimes I would like slip a note under the door, right? That was like, I'm so sorry. Like I was really selfish. I didn't think about <clears throat> how this would affect you or whatever it was. And I remember going through the support boards and people would like take snapshots of like, this is an email I wrote, or this is a note that I wrote. And I was like, that's exactly the same. Like, those are the same words. It was so weird, but it made me feel a lot less alone. So I guess I just want to really reiterate like community, community is part of what is going to help you get through this. And it's really like an action to take is getting into community. And that's also where I think, you know, the, the resources that I've gotten after that, after being in community, like Violet mentioned, um, that book, Understanding the Borderline Mother was kind of another sort of like game changer, right? Like on the uh, sort of turning point on the road of my recovery, I was like, oh, wow. And that book's pretty fucking intense. Like, I think eggshells is, um, a little bit more, (laughs) more of like a gentle, uh, on-ramp, you know, or understanding the borderline mother is like, whoa, like it's really in it. Um, But when you're ready for that on your journey, the people that you're interacting with, the community you become a part of is going to help guide you and help you, yeah, get what you need at the time that you need it. Amen. I love the analogy you gave about the tree and someone with borderline tendencies or full-blown BPD, inherently it's draining. Like, so you need to be resourced just to even set the boundaries And to Mel's point, it's so comforting to be able to text a friend because a lot of us in our friend circle were kind of reading this and going through this a few years ago together and say, wow, like this thing just happened. This was my response. Is that crazy making? Like, because you don't trust yourself as much. The the borderline person doesn't want you to trust yourself because then you might leave them. Yeah. So we threw a lot at you. (laughs) Um, hopefully it landed. If you, um, you know, need any resources or anything, or you want, you know, any other kind of support, you can always get me at dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. And, um, if you are interested in pillars of presence, we have a free training for men specifically. And, um, you can find that at evolutionary.men slash training. And if you're a woman listening to this, which I know not as many listeners are women, but if you are a woman listening to this, I have sessions at violetlang.com forward slash talk, and we can talk about potentially working together, whether this is something you see in your partner, or maybe you notice that you have some BPD tendencies. I don't work with someone, I can't diagnose someone, and I don't work with people who are 
considered to be, you know, full-blown BPD. But if you're like, oh my God, I see myself enacting some of these behaviors, I can help you strengthen your nervous system and your attachment style and help you to heal some of the inner child stuff that may still be driving these patterns of attraction. Yeah. And I just really want to acknowledge everyone that is taking action because there's something really brave about breaking the patterns in your family system. And it's really, yeah, it's really brave getting therapy, getting somatic therapy, doing coaching, taking a workshop, actually going into these darker places, feeling the shame, you know, doing the whole thing is not easy. It's really brave. And I believe it's one of the biggest ways that we can each contribute to humanity because as we heal ourselves and we heal our family systems, we're setting up the right context for the next generation. We're not, they're not going to be born into the same kind of unconscious patterning. It's going to be more conscious and aware and attuned, which is really what we're going for at the end of the day. <laughs> 